when I started to read about biases, it was like a eureka. I mean, this is what happened to me. And, and you have many biases, but everything can be summarized in confirmation, availability, because everything is basically telling yourself a story. You believe the story and then you go to reality to find sparks in reality that confirm the story. Either because you're always trying to read about the success of the three or four entrepreneurs that did it and, they, and nobody wants to read about the thousand entrepreneurs that they didn't do it. And Twitter is full of, of guys telling you, look how I did it. <laughs> ta, 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 ta. And then please book a call for me because I can do it for you for a $10,000 retainer fee. <laughs> That's magic. Nobody wants to talk about it. No one wants to hear about it. But you learn much more about in failure than you learn about successes. Early on in her career, our show's advisor, Jennifer Pendergast, and a colleague wanted to write a book about failures so readers can learn from it. That's a great idea, except that they couldn't find a single person willing to come forth and share their stories. And who can blame them? No one wants to talk about failure unless it all ended with success. But in this episode of Family in Business, we are going to talk about failure. Hi, my name is Esther Choi, the executive producer and your host of the John Elwood Center for Family Enterprises' own podcast series, Family in Business, a podcast that features stories of leaders, their family, and the family enterprises they transformed. We're going to tie in with the stories that we've covered in the past three episodes how more and more family members in family enterprises nowadays want to create their own legacy, how they can leverage family business assets of very many different kinds, and how discovering one's own niche take deep knowledge, but also keen observation, curiosity, relentlessly asking the question, why not? Because only when we tie in the adventurous journeys that led to happy endings With the eventful experiences that led to unhappy endings, could we see a clearer and more complete picture of entrepreneurship and family business? Ariel is ready to tell his story. Who is Ariel? My name is Ari Elias Bacal. Right now, I run a a yoga studio business with my wife here in Miami. I have um, also a, a nice sneaker brand based on collaboration, blanks.me. I finished economics in Bogota, University of the Andean, Universidad de Los Andes. Then I started a short career as an investment banker. In 1999, I was 22 years old. I moved to Venezuela. I'm from Colombia. I was born in Colombia, in Cali. In 1999, I was 22 years old. I moved to Caracas, in Venezuela, to open our business. My family had business uh, in the food industry. So we used to have a, a big factory and also retail stores, export business, wholesale, catalog. So I moved to Venezuela because the situation in Colombia wasn't that good and Venezuela was boomy. So somebody has to go there to run the business. So I said yes, and I moved at the age of 22. I worked in Venezuela for 11 years opening stores, bringing also uh, licenses 
to Venezuela. It was Hush Puppy is a very important brand in the U.S., but it's more important outside the U.S. So I was the youngest Hush Puppies licensee to sign a deal that you know, I was 24 when we signed it for Venezuela and then from Colombia. And then I moved again back to Colombia. I took care to work in the business, to be like the CEO. And then I, I moved here. So basically it's, it's like 25 years of family business. Ariel is now based in the U.S. In his office where we're talking, he told me about his family business, his heyday, and the long days when he was doing everything he could to save it. I've never had a conversation with someone so frank and so introspective about a topic a lot of people avoid even thinking about, much less going on record to talk about. So here's the main portion of the interview. You will feel like you're right there with us. So I'll invite our guest experts, Professor Pendergast and Professor Allen, to comment towards the latter part of this episode. So your grandfather came moved from Moldova to Cali, Colombia, and he bought this business. And then your father, after studying industrial engineering in Haifa, Israel, went back and he grew the business. It was thriving and successful in the 70s and 80s. And then when new flood of products coming in from Asia, from other parts of South America, then the business saw a different kind of challenges and different level of challenges. What were the major, do you think, let's say three biggest obstacles once that happened? There are two ways that you compete within, in a business like footwear, either with price or with variety. So price at that time, and now it's also the case, you can bring very cheap products from China, now Vietnam, Bangladesh, And in variety, you can bring beautiful product from Brazil because you need clusters. To have variety, you need a big cluster because, you know, let's say that right now the fashion is in skin leather. So you need tanneries close to you. And then you need a certain material for the outsole. So you need suppliers. To manufacture stuff, you need clusters, like in cars, like in everything. So we were located in a place which we have, we have excellent labor, but a very thin cluster. So we didn't have the price competitiveness of China, nor the beauty and the ability to do beauty, uh, nice stuff like Brazil, Mexico, Italy, Spain. So to do va a variety, we have to import everything from Brazil, Mexico, or Italy. So we end up with huge inventories in raw material. Or we have to go and have the same price of the factory formation, which was impossible. And on top of that, you have something that, that it's, nobody talks about in Colombia. You know, Colombia, unfortunately, is the biggest exports of cocaine, of, of illegal drugs. I didn't invent it, but that's the case. So the way they launder the money is by doing a smuggling, smuggling of brands, smuggling of shoes. Of, so in Colombia, you can go to the city center in any big city and you can find Nikes and Adidas at a very, very low price because they buy it and they dump it and they sell it at, at lower than the cost because they need to launder the money. So competing, if you are in Colombia, competing with Chinese smuggling, Brazil and Mexico and eventually Italy and Spain. So it's very hard. It's very, very hard. What did you try to overcome all these insurmountable challenges? 
So basically, we built a brand which was one of the best brands in Colombia, Reindeer, which is a, a women's sandals based in comfort. So it was a very nice brand, Reindeer. So we took advantage of that. And okay, so we have the brand. Let's go straight directly to the public and let's, let's build stores. So we avoid the low price competition. We can do some things in the factory bring from Brazil and from China the, the things that we do manufacture and have and build a brand based on that. So that's the way that we did it and the way many brands did it when, when they had this type of challenges. Okay, let's open stores, but it's not that easy. It's very hard and it's very costly. What we did actually is go, going to the market that was also part of our natural market, which was Venezuela and trying to, to sell in Venezuela the volume that we were not selling in Colombia. And Venezuela was at that time booming. So it helped us, the fact that we were not competitive yet, so that, that there was not business yet because the competition was so hard. But we had this opportunity in Venezuela. Venezuela had, the oil was at $120, so there was money in, in the market. Everybody was selling the good, the bad, the cheap. Everybody was selling anything. So... I went to Venezuela. We had a, a very good years until it ends. It ended with the, you know, Chavez and all the economic circus that they, they did there. So basically, Venezuela was like a cream, no, like an aloe cream that we, we put it to the wound to survive more years. They were very, very good years. But we had a very deep problem in our business, which is we were no, no longer competitive. That's why. So Venezuela gave us the volume and the margins that we needed because Colombia wasn't given at that, but until it finished. And then we opened Venezuela and we opened stores. So we, we did the two things. So you went to Venezuela, you leveraged the brand, you opened retails, and you still have the factory. Yes. So you have fired all cylinders why did it not work at the end? First of all, to have a retail company is very different than to have a, a manufacturing company. Both are expensive and both are working capital intense. If you're going to keep both, you have to finance both. And if you don't have a perfectly balanced and boomy revenue, I mean, people are buying your stuff and paying you on time, it's very difficult. So you have to go to banks. So we end up with inventory in the factory, inventory stock in the stores. Every dollar in inventory, you have to bring either profit or bank or receivables or, I mean, accounting is the most beautiful thing the human ever invented. I mean, if you do this, you have to bring that. So if you, if you increase inventory by $1 million, either you made a profit of $1 million or you have to bring $1 million in debt. So, so inventories start to pile up. Expenses start to rise because you have to pay rent. You have to pay also the factory. The more we sold on retail, the less we sold on wholesale. Not because the customers or the clients told us, ah, you're opening stores, we're going to buy you. They, they won't buy our, our product because we were more expensive. So commodities were up. Colombia was also booming. Banks were lending hand to fist. So we were managed to grow the business with bank money, uh, mainly dollar-denominated debt. Was very, very cheap. What period was that approximately? It was from 2006 until 2010, 
12, 13, 14, that, that period of time after the 2008 crash, so that interest rate went down, down. Just to give you an example, a company in Colombia, I was able to take loans in dollars at 4% interest rate. Now, mortgages in, in the U.S. are 8%. So we were risky. I mean, we were the classic financial time bomb, but people were lending because, you know, when when money flows and everything goes right, nobody's asking tough questions. No, no. Yeah, that is a classic time bomb. So then what happened at the end? So basically we had this big company, uh, lots of inventory, lots of working capital, lots of debt. And then the peso devalued from 1800 to 4000 when the oil prices went down. So we had double the debt, half of the sales because they were in pesos. So if you translate it to dollars, so it was very tough. So I, I decided that the, we start to work with the lenders to get refinance, a workout agreement rather than a chapter 11. So uh, we started a workout agreement, then it didn't work out. So we went to chapter 11. The negotiation process in the chapter limit was also tough. So at the end of the day, we decided to take it to liquidation, which is chapter seven in the U.S. law. You had to make the announcement March 18, 2016. Can you take us back to that day when you were speaking to your employees? Yes. I mean, it was very obvious for the people that something was, was going to happen. And before that announcement, during 2015, I decided that we have to sell in the U.S. market because it's the biggest market. We have to sell in the, in the U.S. market. And actually, we start to sell to big companies here in the U.S. Magically, because it's not an easy task to do. So we start to to sell to, to actually a, to a company owned by Berkshire Hathaway. But the prices and the thing that I was willing to do was too much for the factory. We didn't have money and we were making orders of shoes that we are not used to do it. And we did it. And, and the workers in the factory were staying for long hours to have the, that order ship on time. I mean, everybody was very involved in the process, trying to save the factory. So I got a phone call from one of the biggest clients here in, in the U.S., he told me, Ariel, you, you did a fantastic job, but you know what? We're moving our program from your factory to one, the one that we have in Brazil. Although you did fantastically, but you have to understand, Brazil, they have cluster, they're much better equipped. We really don't know how you guys did it, but you did it. Nevertheless, we're going to Brazil. And so I decided at that time that, I mean, it doesn't make sense. So we started the process of making the arrangement to close the factory. So in that day, I was 39. March 17th, the other day, was my 40th birthday. I mean, 40 years old. And I made the announcement. I wanted to do it myself, not through the lawyers. And, and uh, yes, uh, we went to the, to the cafeteria. And I said that that's, this is the last day that, I mean, one of my family members, Juan Bacal, leads the factory. And I told them that they know how much we struggled, how, how much we fought how many new clients we tried to bring in in so short period of time. But we have to close. So everybody started to cry. It was very, very, very hard. How many people were there? Do you remember approximately? Approximately 300 
because we, we were cutting stuff, we were cutting, so that, that was like three, 350 around that. How did you get yourself ready to make that announcement? You never are, you're never ready. But I mean, when you don't have options, one of the best things of not having option of the, the silver lining is that you have to do what you have to do. So my only option is, is telling someone else to do it and not me. And that wasn't an option. Was your father around? No, because during that process, a couple of years before, my father went to live with my mother in Israel. They wanted to retire and my mother very uh, wisely, seeing all the problems that we have and giving me some space, you know, okay, let's Ariel deal with it because he cannot deal with this. Plus maybe also because it was very hard for me, you can imagine for my father. So so this, they decided to move to Israel and to take like a sabbatical year. So my father wasn't that day and he was, he was actually in, you know, he was in Cali that day because they moved back to Colombia because my father, my mother, sorry, started cancer treatment the next day. March 17, my mother went to here to Florida to start her cancer treatment. Wait, so your parents... They were already living in Israel. And during this time when you were doing everything you could to save and revive the business, were you solely in charge? Or what was the sort of role of responsibilities fallen between you and your father or other family owners? I was solely in charge with my team. I mean, we, we had a CFO, we had a a very good team, but I was solely in charge. And when I when we started the negotiation process with the lenders, I was the one who went there and put my face. I don't know how how, how to say it, but I think that it was was the best thing to do because it was a hard, a difficult process. But if you want to have some mercy of the lenders, the owner have to be there. You have to sit and talk with the banks, talk with the suppliers, talk with the workers middle management. So basically, I tried to brief my father in everything that we were doing, but I don't want him to be extremely worried. And after my mother's health deterioration, more so. So were you the CEO then? You're like solely one of the owners as well as you're the executives in charge? Yes, indeed. How did you feel before and after the making the announcement? I remember uh, getting that call from the big customer here in the U.S. And I was like a little bit of relief. I did what I did. I mean, because if they were keeping sending me those orders and pushing me to still do these orders at, the, at a price and the condition that they want me to do, I mean, I, I would say yes, but it was impossible. So when they say, you know what, I go to Brazil, I told them, you know, I, I, I completely understand. Hope to see you again soon. Buy and at that time what you have to you know that you have to make a decision but you don't want to make it so there is this little I mean like spark spark wow okay I have to make it there is no other choice so okay I'm ready so let's start the process and let's do it okay many entrepreneurs that they many unfortunately they are closing their business they struggle they struggle but maybe they they get the message or, or the phone call from the VC we're not doing another investment or there is no money. So I think that getting that call 
it's better than not getting any code. That type of spark gives you, okay, this is it. I'm sitting here. I know my options. But if you are in the, like, trying to figure out and drowning and drowning and drowning and drowning, you, you, you end up dying. So looking back, were there anything you think you would have done differently? I think that what will make sense would have made sense at that time. Sorry, my English is not... You know, Celia Cruz is a, is a Cuban singer. Of course. Yes, Celia Cruz, she always said, my English is not a very good looking. <laughs> so, so my English is not very good looking. So I think that the correct way of doing things, it was to close the business after the Venezuela market stopped giving us the volume that we needed. That was the, the, the day that we should say, you know what, let's close it. We, we have good liquidity. Let's pay everybody. And that's it. But it's very difficult because we were on the, the top. We were selling and selling and selling and selling and, and opening stores. So it's very, it's very hard. It's almost impossible to close or to stop your business or what you're doing when you are nearly in the top. You always wait until you're drowning. That's human nature, no? Most amazingly, since the closing of his family footwear business that his grandfather started in Colombia, Ariel is back at the entrepreneurial venture again. It's called Blanks, and you can find it online. It's B-L-A-N-X dot M-E. What kind of business is this? Footwear. That's right. Another footwear business but this one is very different. So basically, Blanks, it's a brand that is based on collaboration. It's a sneaker brand, which leverages on two things. One is collaborations, not with celebrities. We collaborate with artists and influencers. So we both launch small sneaker drops of canvas sneakers, which are print. Not on demand, but almost on demand because print on demand in sneakers is not, the technology is not there yet. But we partner with influencer or, we, or with the collaborator to drop sneakers into the marketplace. It's a kind of a taking the Jordan Nike model and bring it to the masses. We have a, a, a tattoo artist from Mexico. We can have a Broadway actor also from New York, the drummer of Imagine Dragons also, a, the idea is that they have a story to tell and if they have a, also an audience to help sell the shoes. I guess it wasn't because we launched it through, uh, during Corona, but I started to entertain the idea of having some sort of brand that you can have uh, like a variety of product, a variety of design with a very concentrated product. So the, the problem in footwear is that to, in order to have two bestsellers, have to develop like 20 or 50 models. So, you, so it's it's very time consuming. The inventory is, is, is a mess. The research and development into develop, it's very hard. So it's, it's, it's like a casino gambling, every collection that you make. There is no way to have like a, a very systemic way of doing things in fashion. So I started to think like five years ago is, okay, how, how can I take one or two products, very plain vanilla, like a commodity, a simple canvas shoe, 
and then print several designs on the same product. So the product is the same in, in the production floor, in the factory, but with one exception, you print it differently according to demand. So that's why, based on that, we created blanks, which is, okay, based on that technology and that supply chain way of doing things. So it's five years ago, but we launched our first batch of collaborations during Corona. Okay, now the most obvious one, the pink elephant in the room. 2016, when you had to make the announcement and then liquidations afterwards, 2020, 2020. Barely four years later, you are back at it again. And shoes, why? Okay, if I close it, if I sell it, what am I going to do? Maybe I have some saving, which is a great, but if you don't have it or you have not the amount that will give you tranquility, so what, what is it that you're going to do? So usually you pivot to something that you know. That's why, and you feel comfortable and and you know that what, what you're doing and what the levers are. So that's why I'm doing again the, the shoe stuff. All our narratives are made up by us. That's Professor Jennifer Pendergast, our show's advisor and the executive director for Kellogg's John L. Ward Center for Family Enterprises. The story you tell about who you are and your origin story, the story I tell, is largely a story I created in my mind by putting together pieces of things for how I choose to make sense of what happened to me. And this is very much a psychological phenomenon. And there's a whole line of psychological research around generativity and our desire to sort of create this legacy and the story we tell about who we are. And I do think there are families that do things like that well. Like they tell the story about the things that failed. That's a good thing. It's not just that telling failure stories is a good thing for learning, but it is also extremely helpful to think how we frame our stories to begin with. From the beginning, I said we are setting out to listen to a story about a failed family business. Perhaps that's not right altogether. You've probably heard, right? You should fail fast. You should fail early. You're going to run into problems. You're going to run into mistakes. And the idea is to overcome or work around or whatever you need to do to get past. That's Professor Matt Allen from Babson College. This year, he's also a visiting professor at Kellogg's Ward Center. I think in family business, you're going to find it is a little bit different because of the mindset that families have about the core family business. I'll give you an example. I had a student in my office and we were talking about family business and he said, oh, I wish that I could have been part of a family business, but my family is kind of a failure at family business. And I said, oh, that's interesting. Tell me what you mean. And he said, well, my grandfather started a business that was very successful, but he sold it before he passed it on to my father. And my father also started a very successful business, but he sold it before he passed it on to me. And now I've started my own business, but we're really a failure at family business was his response, which I found quite interesting, right? Successful businesses, but his view of failure was the fact that none of these businesses as specific entities passed from one generation to the next. And I think families sometimes will look at the original family business and success or failure 
depends on whether that business continues. But if you look at the history of long-lived family businesses, very often the current business, four generations later or three generations later, has almost no resemblance to the original family business. I think we talked about that before with the, the accountants that end up in, t- in the newspaper industry. Matt's referring to Zach Richner's family business. He is the guest of Episode 3 in Season 3. Zach's grandparents were originally accountants when they purchased the first local newspaper company. Back to Matt. Their original, if you were to call them entrepreneurs with what they started originally, doesn't look at all like a media conglomerate later. And you could look at this case that you described almost in a similar way, right? The core family business which manufactured shoes is gone. Is that a failure or is the entrepreneurial legacy continuing in this third generation family member? And I would even add... What gets really interesting is whether or not the family has multiple businesses. Because if there are lots of businesses, let's say three or four that are going on and one goes away, well, the other three are continuing and then maybe they pick up a fourth and it it looks like this family business is, is continuous throughout. In this case that you describe, it sounds like there was one family business and it went away before this new online shoe business or the yoga studios or the consulting actually came to be. And so it feels like a very stark time delineated failure. What would it look like if the online shoe business had started three years before the manufacturing business went under? Would we consider that a failure or would we just say that was part of the evolution? And would we still have started this episode saying, we're so fortunate to have someone willing to share a failed family business story? Or would we have probably said instead, we're about to listen to a story of a family business with a dramatically different business because it has evolved with the marketplace. Sometimes a door needs to be closed before another one can be opened. If we zoom out on the timeline of Ariel's family business, there was a four-year gap between the core business being shut down and liquidated and when he launched his online business, Blanks.me. This gets to the third element in our family in entrepreneurship model, timing. When we talk about timing, it could be about the go-to-market timing. It could be about timing with macroeconomic and geopolitical developments. It could also be about the fact that family business tend to have patient capital because family enterprises, as opposed to publicly traded companies, have a very different relationship with time. But the timing in Ariel's case is that there was a period of involuntary hiatus. Do we necessarily default to calling the family business failed because there was a pause when all throughout that period, Ariel has clearly leveraged many of his family business assets, the expertise, knowledge, relationship, just to name a few. And he discovered his own niche in this very competitive product category. The entrepreneurial legacy has continued on to his generation, the third generation. And yet, here's how Ariel describes his story. My story is like a tragic Greek story. So if you fail, you did something wrong. So my story is about 
you can fail doing something which is right, but it's not the correct thing to do, but you cannot, you, you only will see it when you already failed. When we look at stories that others have written, be it by our family members generations ago or by storytellers centuries and centuries ago, we tend to use them as our reference point. We tend to borrow the plots and story arcs and tell our stories mirroring theirs and unknowingly. But when we look at what Ariel has learned and applied from running his family business into his present venture, Blanks.me, I don't get a sense that I'm listening to a tragic Greek story at all. For example, if you have a software or, or a technology which has network effects that can scale very quickly without investing too much money, you can invest money in the beginning and try to have that technology grow a lot and then bring profit like Google, like Facebook, Instagram, because those are profitable businesses. To apply the startup model to a non-technology, to fashions, to direct-to-consumer, is not the case. To start a business which is a fashion brand or a brand which requires working capital, you have to bring inventory, you have to invest in acquisition, you have to invest in marketing. And thinking that the more you grow, the less you're going to lose and eventually you're going to make profit and that process will be funded by someone else. It's something that it's not the case anymore. I think that people are realizing that it was a mistake because lots of the businesses that they funded are not making profit after many years because acquisition cost gets higher, not lower. I mean, to attract a new, a new customer, let's say to an XYZ brand that it's only digital, it will cost you more maybe or, or the same. It, it doesn't get any cheaper to attract and you need a big, bigger team. So it's very hard to scale it profitably if you do not do it from scratch. I would love Blanks to be like a brand that it's everybody was talking about. It doesn't matter who you are. It's, it's a brand like build it from bottom to top. I would like to build it like as a brand slash platforms from artists and influencers to have a beautiful sneaker and maybe other products in the future. So you can buy a piece of art from artists from Mexico, from Philippines or from the U.S., and it's a limited edition. So it will take time, much longer than any startup or any VC-funded business will take. But when I arrive there, if I arrive there, I will, I will arrive much stronger. Are you hearing a tragic Greek story? I don't. Instead, I'm hearing an extremely wise and highly sophisticated industry insider who is seeing a path to build a new venture that crosses the sections of fashion, tech, influencer-based brand. That's because Ariel has not only continued on his family entrepreneurial legacy, he's leveraged all forms of assets from his family business, and he has discovered his own niche. Entrepreneurship is not just about a mindset that solves problems. Entrepreneurship is also about writing our own stories with our own arcs. Kartikwahi from episode one said, I wanted to write my own glory. Ian Rosen from episode two was confident when he said, I can find my way back to the family business. Zach Richner in episode three said, if something has been done a certain way for a long time, that means there's probably another way to do it. 
And that's exactly what the guest of our next and last episode of season three has been doing. She writes her own entrepreneurial stories, in her own terms, on her own time, and with her own story arc. I hope you won't miss that. Thank you for tuning in to Family in Business, a podcast sponsored by the John L. Ward Center for Family Enterprises. Thank you, Ariel Bacal, co-founder and proprietor of Blanks.me. Our show is supported and advised by Dr. Jennifer Pendergast, Executive Director of Kellogg's Ward Center for Family Enterprises. Kane Power is our podcast engineer, and I am Esther Choi, Kellogg Class of 2009, CEO and Chief Story Facilitator of Leadership Story Lab, and the author of the book "Let the Story Do the Work."